I'm Claire. And I'm Natalie. And we are a licensed psychologist and licensed school psychologist and a pediatric occupational therapist. And we are here to talk to you about stories of kids and adolescents who have maybe some struggles with development or disabilities, and also the parents and the caregivers and the teachers and the therapists who love them and work with them. We've divided this podcast up into two parts. So the first part is focused more on stories and experiences that we have and that parents have shared with us about their child um, with special needs. And then the second part, we delve into more details about those experiences and what we would do with them clinically if you want some more information on that. Yep. I think that's it. Goodbye. The following message is brought to you by our lawyers. A Little Cerebral is a podcast documenting a conversation between a psychologist and a pediatric occupational therapist. This is intended as a conversation between two colleagues. We are not providing legal, medical, educational, or any other advice, recommendations, or treatments through this podcast. Merry President's Day. (laughs) (laughs) That is definitely not what I was thinking you were going to (laughs) say. (laughs) <laughs> I thought like hello, hi, but I appreciate it and I appreciate the enthusiasm. So Yeah, you're welcome. Yes. There you go. <laughs> How are you celebrating your president's day? Oh, Natalie? You know, I'm sitting on a trampoline in my studio oh. <laughs> by myself in my sweatpants and sweatshirt. <laughs> well that's exciting. great. Yes. I celebrated you. by going to physical therapy and doing my taxes. Mm, mm. Gosh, you know, I was like, I have so much time to do taxes and then realized I like, I don't even know what's going on with taxes. I was like, oh my God. Anyways, oh, that's a whole other somebody. thing. Oh, you pay somebody. Yeah. I just, yeah. Am, I feel like I'm a contractor for like a thousand different companies. So um, yeah. Yeah. gets a little bit yeah. complicated. Anyway, so because it's President's Day, we're all at home. So hopefully my kids are in the basement playing Beyblades and my husband is cooking and my dog is lurking outside the door because um, I don't, he's really loud. And so if he barks, it's really piercing. And he also howls and he, he's just, he sounds can't be in well here. Trained. He's not a good podcast dog. What's that? I said he sounds very well trained. <laughs> he's actually a really good dog. He's actually the best dog I've ever had. He's a really good dog, but I just like making fun of other people's dogs because my dog is so annoying. (laughs) (laughs) I've met your dog. Yeah. I think your dog is special in his own way. Oh, well, thank you. That's very therapist of you. Um, You know, I think that (laughs) my husband also wanted me to clear something up, which I think is funny. He actually listened to the podcast. Oh, no. (laughs) Wait, your husband listened to the podcast? Yes. Yes. Well, I was like, I asked him to, and then he actually did it. And then he was like, I feel like I got thrown under the bus <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> He's like, I don't just come upstairs and make coffee. <laughs> so I have to set the record straight that he doesn't often just come upstairs and make coffee. Lately, he's been a hashtag dad boss and has been doing like multiple, multiple things when he comes up and getting the kids breakfast. So... Kudos to that. Good for him. Yes. Right. Exactly. And I have to give my husband credit. He's making euros right now. So good yeah. for him. Good for him. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. All right. 
great for husband. Yeah. <laughs> now that we've got that out of the way, should we move right along to move our along. um our essay for today? Yes, please. Okay. All right. <laughs> and I have I have this on this clipboard I use and I use it in session. And I realized at some point after like months of using it that it makes this creaky sound because it's plastic that sounds like a fart. So, and I, cause I noticed my clients like writing on it and then like looking at me, like, did you know that that's your clipboard, right? Like I didn't. And, and so if you hear sounds, just that's know it's farting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Any sound at all. No yes. way. Did I agree to me farting? No. It's my clipboard. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'm not agreeing with me farting. Uh -huh. I am a, this is my clipboard. <laughs> you can't hear it. I don't think you can hear it. Okay, great. All right, so I'm going to read this. This is from my friend Kate. So um, she has a son. Actually, you know what? I thought it would be helpful to do a definition of terms ahead of reading this. So dual diagnosis. That's when you have, you would think just two diagnoses, but the way I hear it used the way I use it is that you have more than one diagnosis at the same time. So like um, depression and anxiety or ADHD and anxiety as the case may be. Differential diagnosis is when you're trying to differentiate symptoms that could overlap between diagnoses and you're trying to figure out what is what. So just in advance, everybody know that I might use those words and that that's kind of um, the moral of the story. So here we go. This is from a, um, my friend Kate. Um, so my son who is 11 has struggled with behavioral issues since age four. It started with throwing chairs in preschool and instantaneous Hulk-like anger for seemingly no reason. He has been assessed by experts from several states and has been diagnosed with differing combinations of anxiety, ADHD, autism, and OCD, OCD being obsessive compulsive disorder. Uh, they have all agreed on one thing though. He has severe ADHD or does he? When I think of my son and his journey, one particular incident comes to mind. My son was about eight years old, and we went to Starbucks to meet a potential after-school babysitter, a male babysitter who was just recently a freshman in high school. My son doesn't do well meeting new people. He is even more hyper than usual and tends to say whatever comes to his head, a recipe for disaster. After we got our drinks and sat down, my husband and I began to ask questions to the potential babysitter. Out of nowhere, my son loudly declares, my mom has freckles on her butt. First of all, I do not. Second of all, I don't think I've ever seen someone as embarrassed as our poor potential babysitter. For years, we attributed his, meaning her son's, lack of filter to ADHD and worked with him on impulse control. We over-medicated him to the point where he was on the maximum adult dose of ADHD meds. He was angry and irritable, but nothing seemed to work. Until one day, something clicked. My son was completely different at home than he was in public. At home, he was primarily relaxed and calm and in control of his actions. As soon as someone other than his immediate family arrived or we left the house, all bets were off. Whatever came into his head came straight out of his mouth. He bounced around, unable to sit still. He was showing classic ADHD symptoms. Except his symptoms in those situations aren't ADHD symptoms at all. They're severe anxiety. He has been struggling with anxiety in public and around different people for the last seven years while we attempted to help his ADHD and put anxiety on the back burner in treatment. Suddenly, everything made sense. He shouts out in class because he's anxious around peers. 
He struggles with change because it makes him anxious not to know what's coming. He doesn't do well at restaurants because there are so many people and so much noise. So when we took him to Starbucks to meet a person, we were triggering him in several different ways. I struggle with anxiety myself. I have been diagnosed with OCD and know how awful anxiety feels. When I, not the doctors, figured out what was going on, I hurt for my son. I hurt knowing that he had been so uncomfortable for so long and we had basically been ignoring that issue. Since I determined that his primary difficulty is social anxiety, things have improved. He has developed the awareness and vocabulary to tell us how he feels. His meds have been adjusted to reduce his ADHD meds substantially and increase his anxiety meds. He's been working with a center for anxiety disorders on CBT, meaning cognitive behavioral therapy, and ERP, which is exposure response prevention therapy. He's come a long way. We still have a long way to go before he is comfortable in his own skin, but I finally have faith that we will get there together. Mm. Pretty interesting, huh? Yeah, right. So there's a couple things that come to mind with this. Um, (laughs) Some of them would be, I see a lot of kids who are diagnosed with ADHD and then they're put on a stimulant and they become even more anxious and it actually does them more harm than good. Um, and I've, I've seen it just, just a few times, but I do think everybody should be aware of that. Like if you get an ADHD diagnosis, it might be more anxiety. And then if you put an anxious child on a stimulant, they will respond poorly to that. Do you agree? I agree. Um, and I think I'm all, so I am a hundred percent for medication. I think medication is great. I think medication gets a person to the place where they can then learn the behavioral strategies and some of like the body-based strategies that can be helpful for later down the life managing themselves. I don't think it means you have to be on meds forever, but I think it can be really, really helpful. That being said, I mean, I do a lot of ADHD evals. That's like my favorite kind of evaluation to do. And it's fun because part of an ADHD eval is you rule in symptoms, right? You do a good clinical interview. You do a bunch of other things as well. But the big thing is the clinical interview because you want to see like what symptoms are they showing and when did they start? But you also, and this is the part people forget, it's the diagnosis of ruling in and ruling out because the symptoms of ADHD um, mimic a lot of other symptoms or a lot of other disorders, I'm sorry, and other mental health issues also, like they mimic ADHD, right? And so um, I love that part of differential diagnosis, trying to figure out what is what. And in this particular case, he does have ADHD and he also has anxiety and you can have them both. But the problem is like a good clinical interview is really going to get at like, what is what, like, and when is this symptom? And like, when is this anxiety? And when is this ADHD? Because you may have the same symptom for both and it doesn't mean it's one or the other, but I think the when is really important. Yeah. Um, I also think there can be um, like a secondary anxiety. So what I mean by that is I see a lot of kids who have poor skills. Sorry. Or they get, (laughs) I'm just very popular. Or they get, um, they have poor skills or or they um, have an experience with something from when they're dysregulated and they kind of remember that. So they have this anticipatory anxiety. So it can either be anticipatory anxiety or they're like, I know I can't do this, or I know that compared to my peers, I can't do it as well. And so then they have anxiety around like doing whatever that is. If it is like even going to school, they could have anxiety because they're like, I have to work so hard during the day, I don't like it. 
So you can have anxiety where you're thinking about something and then you have an anxious response um, versus like what we talked about in the other episode of being dysregulated where it's more of a generalized anxiety and you don't know where it's coming from. It's That's like a brainstem processing issue. Yes. I, um, I actually see what you're talking about, the secondary anxiety piece, a lot. And I would say I don't think I've seen any kids with ADHD who don't also have anxiety. Yeah. But most of the time, it is that secondary piece. Because in the same way that a person with autism misses social cues, and in that, and in that case, it's really being able to interpret social cues. With ADHD, it's not necessarily the interpretation. It's that you are missing. You're not attending to the micro level social cues. So think about like if you're a girl, right? And somebody does a subtle thing with their face that I can't show over a podcast, but it would be something like you can see it'd be like this, right? Like a, like a a really kind of slight, a slight roll of the eye and a thing they do with their mouth, which basically means whatever you said was so stupid, right? And then the person doesn't catch that and they continue and they're completely missing some of this social stuff. They can't figure out why what they're doing isn't working. Not that it's okay for people to be rude to each other that way, but they're then continuing to respond in a way that doesn't match mm. the social response or social cue that the other person gave. So I, I hypothesize, I actually don't think that this, like I don't have data for this, but I hypothesize that this is what that's about, that it's about those really subtle micro level social cues. Or if you're a really impulsive and hyperactive child who gets in trouble a lot, I would actually say not or, I would say and or, the sense that you're going to get in trouble, you're going to get mess, you're going to mess up and you don't know how to stop it. You know it's happening. You know it's going to happen, but you don't know how to stop it. And so I would say that's like that secondary piece. I have like but another I think it's, it's, piece it could sorry. be actually too. Oh. As long as we're like throwing out hypotheses here, right? Because we're so scientific. Sure. Is, um, yeah. You know, when a child has, has processing difficult at the level of the midbrain, which is skill-based, so... Um, and actually at the upper brainstem as well. But anyways, that could be a child who has trouble multitasking. So nothing becomes, nothing is automatic for that child. So they have to unconsciously think or pay more attention to what they're doing, but everything. So I think a good analogy is if you are every day on your way home from work, you're taking a different route. So you really have to pay attention. You're not thinking in words but you're more alert, like you're just hyper aware of whatever is going on and you really have to pay attention to make sure that you're turning where you need to turn. Compare that to going home every day on the same route where you're just like on automatic drive. So kids who have a midbrain processing issue are unable to do anything automatic. So they have to pay attention to everything, including if they're sitting in a seat, how do I sit in the seat? Like, how do I hold this pencil? And, and again, it's not like they're thinking those questions, but they do have to pay extra attention to every single thing that they're doing. So then they are unable to also pay attention to like directions from the teacher or something else that their cortex is supposed to process. So basically their, their cortex is, is compensating for their poor processing. And then they're just exhausted and tired. I was just going to say that. I was going to say yeah. it sounds exhausting. And then you yeah, don't have the mental like the mental bandwidth that you need at the end of the day, like you can go through a day of this, imagine how exhausted you are and you don't have the coping skills of an adult. You don't have like the frontal lobe development of an adult and you already have these skill deficits and you're running on like less, right? You yeah, have less bandwidth totally. than everybody else. It's kind of like a recipe for disaster. Totally. So 
with this particular child, because I know them pretty well, I do think for him that it's probably, there might be a piece of secondary, but my guess is that it is like, um, because of his mom's OCD, I think that there's a piece to it that probably is standalone anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's probably a piece to it where it's like that secondary piece we were talking about. And yeah. if you think about it, like him blurting out, well, that sounds like impulsivity, right? Him moving around and like distracting himself. That sounds like hyperactivity. Um, it can also actually be too, there's like, um, some... avoidance. Like I see a lot of kids who look impulsive and hyperactive because they're avoiding things. So they're sort of like huh. avoidance, 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 like moving around from one thing to the next because they do not want to do whatever you're asking them to do. And even going back to that midbrain, I see a lot of kids, midbrain processing, I see a lot of kids who have poor body awareness. And so from that point of view, they're also moving, 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 because they have to touch everything to figure out what it is, because they can't rely just like on their eyes or ears, or they rely heavily on their eyes and ears because they have poor body awareness. So they they look very distracted. So there's a difference between being distracted, like uh, distractible, I think that's a word, and... Um, like dis- yeah, like works. dysregulated, yeah, where they're actually hyperactive. Mm-hmm. So then there's also this piece of tension reduction behavior. So tension reduction is essentially, like if you think about OCD, um, you have like an obsessive thought and then you have a compulsive behavior. And that compulsive behavior is essentially like that tension reduction piece. There's this piece where the obsessive thought is there. There's this really like heightened anxiety and I am not an expert on OCD. It's not something I treat. It's like, I feel like it's something that's very specialized, but, um, I, I see tension reduction in other ways with other kids. Like you see kids, I remember we had this kindergartner at this one school I worked at and he would like smack girls butts and it looked like, like sexual, right. And it looked like sexual harassment. But if you went in and observed it, I, I was like, I think this is tension reduction to me. There's something going on and he may have this, like he wants to do it. There's like this sense of tension and anxiety. And that's what was going on in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Um, or at least it needed to be explored further with somebody in a clinical setting, not in a school setting. Um, so, um, I also wanted to talk about like, okay, so with some of the dual diagnoses, ADHD, can also trauma looks a lot like ADHD. So here's Mm. the thing is if you look at the risk factors for trauma or sorry for ADHD, and then you look at where are situations where people are most vulnerable for trauma. So like high conflict families, um, like a lot of moving kind of community violence. And and you look at like, like some, some of the risk factors for ADHD might be like smoking, but some of it is some of the stuff that's happening prenatally. Right. So some, it doesn't mean that if you have trauma, you don't have ADHD. And I hear people say, oh, well, it's probably trauma. Well, it also could be both, right? And that's where like a really solid clinical interview is important and a really good prescriber because like my, so I am not qualified to talk about medications, but I can say in my experience, I have seen that people use a lot of times a combination of atomoxetine and, um, Guanfacine, so essentially Stratera and, and I think 10X is the brand name for the other one, for kids with ADHD who also have trauma or who have anxiety and may not respond to other stuff. So it's kind of like, I'm not saying that's what you should do because I'm not qualified to say that. But my point in saying that is that there are other options apart from just stimulants. And like a really good, solid prescriber should know what those nuances are, even the nuances within a particular medication. 
and yeah. how those are dispersed right. throughout the day. I see a lot of kids too who are put on one medication and then they're put on another to counteract that medication. And so um, oftentimes when parents come to me with their child who is dysregulated and they're asking me um, if they should pursue medication, I often tell them unless they're like really struggling as a family and the child and everybody's just like sort of at their wit's end, if they can hold off while we do a regulation protocol, that would be really helpful because oftentimes what the medication does is it masks the regulation issue or it flip-flops yeah. it. So a child who is ADHD and then they are put on a stimulant, they might come into, into my place, into my practice, and I might see them and they're totally regulated. So I might think that they have a processing issue that's higher up than the brainstem. Now if I saw them off of that medication, then I'd be like, you know, they might be totally like, off the walls and I'd be like, wow, this does look like, like a low brainstem processing situation here um, that is making them hyperactive. So it's really, it can be really challenging as a therapist to determine what's really going on with the child if they're on medications. And again, they're usually on like multiple medications too. So like, like let's say that a kid had just recently been evaluated for ADHD and he or she, I said he is a bias because most of the kids who come to me are males. Um, yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. Let's say they're just recently evaluated. They have a diagnosis. Um, they come to you and they also are, you find that there's some processing stuff or sensory stuff going on. How long would you work with them? Like, let's say that they're a kid who probably, I mean, they really would benefit from being on medication. How, if you're saying like, it might be a good idea to put it off, how long are you saying you would want to put that off or like a range kind of? If they could put it off for like three to four weeks, like a month, where we can really oh. start to like get things underway if it's like a dire situation. Now, like the other things that I that I like to address in, in this situation too is ask their pediatrician about um, other factors that can impact sort of their daily functioning, including sleep. So, um, you know, Along the lines of like checking for iron levels, um, checking for mouth breathing, is that contributing to poor sleep quality, which then can make the child hyperactive because they're trying to keep themselves awake all day. Um, you know, other, other sort of biological factors like that I like to check too because I think some of those, if they're resolved, symptoms or behaviors can decrease too. I also like to check in just to see what their diet is and how if they're a picky eater are they craving certain foods is there a possible like food sensitivity or food allergies so they're i think from like a very very basic level um and i refer out for all of that because i'm not qualified to do that i also think that like Wait. yeah like i like to suggest it have you looked into this have you looked into this and then mm -hmm. i refer um i also think that getting chiropractic care is really important too um because a lot of children that we see uh, in my experience has been that they have a subluxation of the atlas as well, which can contribute to just like inefficient nervous system functioning, which can then contribute to like an over or under responsiveness of either the sympathetic or the parasympathetic nervous system. And that ultimately can contribute to like specific behaviors that you see. Okay. And that's where it gets really hard, right? Because like, I and mean, we understand I mean, ADHD is dopamine transport problems in the frontal lobe, right, the prefrontal cortex. And I know there's something, and I, I don't want to say exactly what it is because I will completely mess it up, but um, the reward system of the brain 
is impacted as well. And I believe, I can't, I don't want to say exactly how, because I cannot recall, but so, I mean, like there are, there's like a biological basis of behavior with ADHD. Like you can link it to what is going on specifically in certain parts of the brain with certain neurotransmitters, but obviously there's stuff that goes at a much deeper level than that. Um, and I think, I mean, I, like one of the places that I refer people to, they do brain mapping and then based on that, because they will, and they also look at blood work, like you're talking about, and they do traditional like Western psychiatry. And so they're kind of, they're holistic, right? But I really trust them because they are, they look at literature. So they did neurofeedback actually for my son. And so neurofeedback can be considered kind of controversial. And I think it depends on what you're treating. The evidence is certainly there in support of ADHD. Um, And so like, you know, I read like a meta-analysis and I was like, okay, well, you know, like this seems to suggest that it's worth it for me to spend. What's that? Some light bedtime reading in your spare time. You're like, let me read this meta-analysis. It was one article (laughs) and, and neurofeedback is like $2,300. So if I'm going to spend $2,300, like I want it to be evidence-based. better read some (laughs) meta-analysis. Yeah, exactly. Right before bed. It actually really helps to put me to sleep. Yeah, I bet. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it was actually incredibly helpful. And and it wasn't helpful, like, from an emotional – the emotional regulation piece was more, like, addressed with meds. And emotional regulation is a huge part of ADHD that's often overlooked. Um, and that's why kids are often misdiagnosed when really what's happening in this case is it actually is ADHD. And like what you're looking at with dysregulation, emotional dysregulation is actually the ADHD piece. But um, so the meds were more helpful with that piece. And again, I would say like if a person is having trouble with the emotional dysregulation, maybe that's a part where like the right medication from the right prescriber who really understands mm-hmm. um, and does like a thorough like interview um, and doesn't just like sort of say, okay, yeah, we'll check, 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 check. I guess it's ADHD for some like Ritalin, right? Yeah. Um, somebody who's really like thoughtful about it. Um, when that happens, it can be really helpful because it gets like when the child is emotionally regulated, then they're able to actually then focus on all these other things that we want them to learn. Yeah. Um, and so what we found was the, um, the neurofeedback was really helpful for um, organization. Like I would say like a sense of time, like understanding time or understanding time as it's passing. Um, and let's see, so organization, like time awareness, kind of just being ready. Um, so not organization just of thoughts, but organization of materials, kind of knowing where all your things are. Yeah, right. Uh, Ability to focus certainly for um, sustained attention. Yeah. Uh, and I would also say we didn't expect this, but the written expression, which mm-hmm. is also often impacted for kids with ADHD, actually improved as well. Yeah, right. And that's like that's like my n of one, right? Like sample size of one. But there is that like meta analysis that I mentioned earlier that does like suggest that it's really helpful. So um, there's a lot of ways to treat ADHD. And then of course, like what I do often is like working with kids around anxiety, emotional regulation, like so um, more of like cortex based interventions, right? Um, But one thing I forgot that I wanted to talk about was trauma and ADHD, kind of going back to that is I just want to talk about like the overlap of symptoms. And then I know we have to like wind this thing up. 
But the National Child Traumatic Stress Network, they have like a whole handout about what is trauma versus ADHD in terms of symptoms. Like what are the symptoms that are specific to each and where is their symptom overlap? Mm -hmm. And what they talk about with overlap is difficulty concentrating and learning in school, easily distracted, often doesn't seem to listen, disorganization, hyperactive, restless, difficulty sleeping. I would actually put on their emotional dysregulation as well because that's something that's common in both. But maybe they didn't know that emotional dysregulation was such a piece to ADHD. Yeah, and you know, but I feel like that is, overlap part, that's where you add, that's just, sorry, go ahead. Were you <laughs> no, you're like, you're like on a roll. Finish your Okay. Job. I will finish. Yeah. So that overlap piece, that's where you ask better questions. And that's where if you're a parent, I think it's really important to say, okay, but could it be due to this or this? Here's the history. Could it be due to this or this? Because yeah. here's when this is happening and here's when it's happening other times. And it seems, it seems like it happens more at this time of day or after this thing or in these situations, this context. And I think that's where it gets helpful yeah, yeah. when you can give more richness to those symptoms. Yeah, I also think that the way that like I think about ADHD is more from a brainstem point of view. So I think that I think of that emotional regulation, dysregulation part that you refer to as like the ADHD brainstem, like poor brainstem processing the brainstem's low, um, like it's cool, so it needs a lot more information to stay regulated, and that's where you get that hyperactivity as a behavior comes out. Um, so just for parents out there, I think that there's providers who use like different terms, and I think that oh. for you, like you approach ADHD more from, like this is where it's happening in the brain from like a cortex point of view. Is that correct? Yeah. And I approach it more from like, I think it's a brainstem processing issue, and I approach it from the brainstem first. Right, which is good. I mean, it's good that we have different points of view because that's the part where we then can collaborate and work together. And I can yeah. say, I'm seeing that here's what I'm working on. What are you doing? And we can kind yeah. of be more like, I guess, I don't want to say holistic, but maybe the word is... I would say holistic. There's another word that I'm... It's holistic, but there's another word that I'm thinking of that is like, means like entire well maybe holistic there's another word awesome. but essentially that we're addressing all aspects right yeah and that hopefully we're referring to a competent provider ubiquitous. how about that what's that i said ubiquitous you <laughs> i don't think it's ubiquitous it's, yeah i think i just uh, looked that up on the dictionary.com <laughs> no it's like word retrieval issues it's like this started in like my late 30s like I started having like word retrieval issues and I'm like I know the thing and then I have to do this whole circumlocution where I'm like describing the word and then eventually like an hour later I remember the word uh, I think I have the same thing but I just like don't even try I'm like a nine-year-old woman I'm like I don't care <laughs> if you don't understand what I'm talking about that's on you now apparently um okay so I do think this is a really Here's important my issue what'd you say I didn't say anything, I laughed. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> I do think that this is, uh, like, ADHD comes up a lot. There's, I, I have to look at the statistic now about how many kids are diagnosed with ADHD, but it is a ton, a ton, a ton of kids. Um, and often they do have di dual diagnosis along with, like, autism, for example, or OCD, yeah. too. Um, and I think what it does come down to is that kids have processing issues. And it can manifest in different ways, and the expression can be different, and that can lead to different diagnoses. But I think for parents, knowing that it all comes back to how that child's brain is perceiving the information that is coming in. Okay. You don't agree? 
no, I agree. I was, I'm listening to you and trying to think of the word. Oh, you have this like I'm weird, like, you have like a resting bitch face. <laughs> I'm like, what, I have like, a, what am I saying? <laughs> I had resting bitch face? Is that yeah, what you said? you have like, you have a serious RBI right now. Yeah, that's why I thought oh, I was saying I something know. wrong. Yeah. It's actually really hard to hear with these. Um, am I yelling? <laughs> um, I think that it's always helpful for parents to get multiple, multiple people involved so that they can take their specific approach. And then as a parent, you have the intuition and ability to sort of pick and choose, like, this is working for my family. I see progress with this and not with that. So I, I think that there's certainly some validity in that to be able to determine I, I want all of these different opinions and then how can I kind of piece it together um, myself or find someone to help me piece this together so that I'm doing the most effective thing for my child. Yeah. I mean, I think you're exactly right. I think the hard part is that sometimes it's hard to know which one of these things do I choose or which one sh parents can get really confused because um, they're getting sometimes really, they're getting information that is maybe very different from one person than another and I think it goes back to what you were saying. I think that you, I think you rule out things one at a time. So if yeah. the first thing you're going to do is try to rule out or say, maybe it's both with the stuff that you're addressing, do that first. Unless mm -hmm. of course there's like a safety issue because um, I think a lot of times, like there are some kids who are so impulsive that parents are really worried about like getting hit by cars. And that's obviously a different issue. Or if, if there's something where anything that's a safety issue, I think becomes different. That being said, the wait list for like a, for a psychiatrist is so long. Although I know a lot of people go see their um, pediatrician for medication. But if you're going to see a psychiatrist, you might as well get on the wait list because all you're going to do is talk about it, not necessarily agree that you're going to take the medication. And while you're doing the wait list, go see you or someone yeah. who's doing what you do. I mean, yeah, 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 totally. Um, yeah, I always recommend to parents, too, that they start by looking at the inside of their child and what's going on inside and then kind of moving out from there. So, for example, if they have the funds to see a chiropractor, craniosacral therapist, like a nutritionist, trying to get all of that gut, internal, like the structural, everything lined up. Because when I start working with a child and my goal is to change how the brain is processing information, I do need to have those neurotransmitters available. And... If the gut isn't functioning properly, then I have a lack of neurotransmitters. If there's a structural misalignment in the spine, then the nervous system isn't transporting information as effectively as it could. So my job is basically harder. It will take longer. And oftentimes, then I'll be able to make certain progress and then hit a plateau with kids. So I think that if you're a parent, like I'm on these wait lists or I don't know where to start, start internally. And some pediatricians are more open to this than others. Mm -hmm. But um, I think we should do maybe another, well, we have it kind of floating around there to do a webinar on this too, like how to advocate as a parent too when you go yeah. in the pediatrician and like what's the information that you should know so that you're well prepared instead of just relying on someone else to give you information and then you're sort of unable to process it in the moment or even if you are unable to like kind of come up with really good questions. So it's almost like studying a little bit before you enter into these um, like pediatric offices so that you can say, well, actually, no, I do want to do this kind of testing. No, I do want a recommendation for this type of practitioner who, you know, can help my child. It, um, it kind of goes back to what you're saying on the first episode about then maybe even bringing like a recorder and recording things because it's so hard yeah. to process. 
Yeah, some, uh, you know, people won't let you record through video, but you can audio record. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, ask them. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's definitely very helpful. And again, yeah, like, it's helpful. Bring it back to your partner if you have someone else living with you who's helping out, like, even babysitters, nannies. Um, it's a lot easier to explain, and it takes, like, a load off of you if you've been in there, and then you're like, oh, now I have to explain all of this. So. Right. Yeah, I think that's really wise, but you're right. This is probably like a whole other episode and it would really be about like talking about first try this intervention, then try this because you wouldn't want to throw them all in at the same time because it's hard to know that it's working. Right. You always, I always recommend doing one at a time and giving it like a month to three months because you really do, if you do everything at once, right, then like it's very difficult to determine what's working and what's not, then you can't go back and replicate it. Um, so it's not like you're throwing money down the toilet, but I picture like throwing money like up in the sky and just like watching it rain down and then you kind of have to like pick it up again. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. We, we have been talking for a really long time. Do you think we should end it? Okay. We should end it. Yeah. Okay. All right. Talk to you okay. soon. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. <laughs>